this is ridiculous, isn't it? This turnout for early service? Wow. You guys ever train a dog, and you know you're surprised when the dog does what you tried to train it to do? You know, you're like, wow, it really worked. We asked some of you to come early, and you came. Well done. Yeah, I'm with Kent. I wonder who will be here for second service. So. This is great. Thanks for coming. You know, it is exciting to be here. Uh, I'm excited to be here for our first early service. And, um, you know, the whole thing with this is we simply want more space so we can affect more people. We think God means for the message of the gospel that Lion Lamb tries to speak consistently to is something folks need. And then discipleship, simply what does it look like to grow up as a Christian? What does that require of us? So, Uh, We don't need to be bigger to be better. We don't need to feel better about ourselves. We simply want to reach more folks for Christ while we have opportunity to do so. So thanks for coming in and scrunching together as needed, and we'll fill this place up again, Lord willing. Uh, While I am thrilled to be here this morning, uh, some of you may not be. You're here physically. Some of you may not be thrilled to be here. And by that, I don't mean here at Lion and Lamb, we're here at first service. I just mean here on planet Earth at all. And that's because a month ago, in the month of September, how many were aware just simply of the internet frenzy related to videos, YouTubes, and suggestions that the end of the world as we knew it in some form was occurring last month? Did you guys see that? Okay. So last month, Many Christians had an expectation that the end of the world as we knew it in some form or fashion was going to occur. And it was tied to um, sort of the coalescence of a number of different things. So September was the Jewish fall feast uh, on the calendar. Um, And we had, it was the fifth uh, lunar eclipse, I think, this year. And, of course, the last one was this super moon, blood moon, which was spectacular. And and the Pope was coming to the United States for the first time. And and somehow the number 23 in movies for the past several decades was significant. And on, on, uh, you could have taken your pick, but on September 23rd, or I think it was September 10th, or on the Feast of Trumpets, or on the Feast of Tabernacles, uh, one of a couple things was going to have happened. In one scenario, what's called typically the rapture of the church was going to occur. And for this group, Jesus would come down from heaven. And while he was in the air, in the atmosphere above the heaven, he would call. And believers would be taken up in the moment, changed in the twinkling of an eye. And folks who'd already died would be resurrected. They'd meet Jesus in the air. Jesus would then make a return trip to heaven... And for the next seven years, there would be a period of intense persecution and trial called the Great Tribulation on planet Earth while Jesus and the church are in heaven. At the end of that, Jesus would come back to the earth, to the Mount of Olives, and establish his kingdom reign. That was one scenario. So some of us were looking forward with particular anticipation to the rapture of the church last month. For others of it, we read the scriptures a little differently And we didn't think the rapture was going to occur, but we thought some kind of cataclysmic event would occur and it would begin that seven-year period, that tribulation period in which the church would go through this period of intense suffering and persecution. 
And then at the end of that, Jesus would come from heaven. The church would be caught up to meet him in the air, just like the other group, former group we talked about thought. But then they would simultaneously come right back down with him to the Mount of Olives. Like Palm Sunday, the people from Jerusalem went out to meet Jesus, came right back in with him. In any event, we're here. So we know the rapture did not occur. And as far as I know, the Great Tribulation didn't uh, begin either. Now, when I say this, uh, my tongue is firmly in my cheek on one hand. And I've had conversations with people and just said, you know, uh, why did you think this way? We'll talk a little bit about this in, in some moments. Um, but the flip side is I am truly sympathetic to the hope and to the willingness to consider that Christ could come back anytime, that we could see Jesus face to face soon, maybe today, or that generally more broadly that God is going to keep his promise and Jesus is going to do what he said and he's going to return. So while on one hand I've poked fun at some of my friends because I think it was an unbiblical viewpoint that motivated them, I'm sympathetic with the attitude of heart that says we want to see Jesus return. We're ready to hear him call us and be united with him forever. So we're here, and I think that means God still has purpose for us on the earth. But we're going to be talking about the second coming this morning. And guys, seriously... One of my primary goals this morning is simply not to be confusing. So that when you walk out afterwards, you don't say, what did he say? What did he mean? And what did I miss? And this is almost an impossibility. So we're going to try and talk about a very broad topic. It's broad and it's deep and it's much bigger than we can do any kind of legitimate treatment of this morning. So my first goal is just that we don't go away confused. My second goal is that we actually come away majoring on the things God calls us to when we anticipate our reunion with him, whether we see that as the rapture of the church imminently or we think our catching up is going to be after a tribulation period. Whatever that is, scripture speaks to the kind of expectation and the kind of lifestyle Christians should have because we believe God will keep his word, call the church to himself, and return to the earth to set up his kingdom reign. There's a couple of key attitudes of heart we're called to, and none of them have to do with identifying the Antichrist. And none of them have to do with identifying the number of horns on the beast's head. And none of them have to do with all these other things that we can really get worked up and caught up in, as some of us did last month, but they missed the point. So hopefully we avoid confusion. Um, I am not going to differentiate, and I'm taking myself off the hook and you guys too, just in not trying to differentiate the rapture of the church from the second coming. What's the relationship of those on a timeline? Are we pre, mid, or post-trib? Do we entertain a dispensational eschatology or a more reformed version of eschatology? We're not getting into any of that this morning though I have firmly held convictions on all of that. But what we want to do is just generally look at some passages that talk about both what we're calling the rapture of the church, however that is tied to the second coming, and texts on the second coming itself to say, what has God promised? What can we expect? And what should our attitude of heart 
and our lifestyle, how should it be affected because these things are so. Now, this is the last in a message in the series, Here We Stand. Uh, This is the second year we've done this as we've started up the church calendar in September. We did six messages last fall. We're doing six messages. This is the last this fall. These were simply things we wanted. If someone came to Lion and Lamb and they stuck around with us for a while, we say these are key doctrines that we hold, we teach, and we think, think are important for you as well. So this is the last of those for this year's six. So Kent started us out six weeks ago talking about truth with a capital T. We believe in moral absolutes and we believe the Bible identifies those. We don't believe in a relativistic world. We believe in moral absolutes. We talked about the sufficiency of the scripture, and by that we meant that by the Holy Spirit's illumination and God's grace, he has put in our Bibles all that we need to live life well for life and godliness. That's all in the truth of God's word. Bill Bider took us to the book of Genesis to affirm for us as a church that we believe Genesis is, in fact, a historic narrative. It is not myth. It is not make-believe. Some chapters aren't reality and some are made-up fable. We believe in the literal nature, the historic nature of the book of Genesis. From Genesis 1.1, the creation of the heavens and earth to a real Adam and Eve, a real fall in sin in the Garden of Eden, a real worldwide flood, etc. We believe in the literalacy, the historicity of the book of Genesis. Larry Stewart reminded us a couple weeks back of the physical, historic resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That this wasn't mass hypnosis. That Jesus didn't swoon and he raised later physically because he never died. And he married Mary Magdalene and had children who live today in the south of France. We don't believe any of that. And guys, of course, the resurrection of a person from the grave never to die again, that changes everything on planet Earth. Everything. If biological life doesn't define us, that is, if I'm not tied merely to biological life as we understand it, as an evolutionist, for instance, might understand it, everything's changed. And Jesus' resurrection changed everything. Steve Green reminded us last week that we believe that we live in a world that is more than, greater than the world we can put our hand on. That, in fact, spiritual realities determine your life and mine. And that, in fact, we have a spiritual enemy. We can't see him. We can't see his host and his army, but they're real. And they try to affect us and they try to harm us. And so our spiritual means of warfare has to do with things like the truth of God's word and prayer. We believe in spiritual reality. And this morning, the title of the message is The Blessed Hope. This has to do with the return of Jesus and his promise to return to the earth and gather us to himself. We're going to look at some scriptures. If you have studied uh, prophetic scriptures and eschatology, this will sound like a muddled mess this morning because we're not really differentiating timelines here, okay? But we're trying to just get the big picture. What's the big picture and what do I take away from it? Before we jump into those texts, uh, just let me set up by way of expectation. What we want to do with the the teaching of the rapture and the second coming is we want to have and live a life of expectation. If you, for just a moment, envision a family, it's a loving husband and wife and a child that we'll call junior. And they love each other. It's a happy, healthy family, okay? That's our assumption. 
When dad leaves for work each morning, Junior's life is disrupted a little bit because dad helps define his world. And so when dad leaves, a part of Junior's life is changed and it's incomplete. And so as Junior goes through the day and he's playing or he's interacting with mom, he's doing the dishes, he's taking out the trash, he's talking with friends, whatever's going on, Junior knows that at some moment later in the day, dad's going to come back through the front door. And life will have this sense of completeness that it didn't through the rest of the day. And they have a loving, happy relationship, and Dad's going to catch Junior up in his arms, and they're going to hug and twirl in the air, and they're going to sit down with Mom at the supper table, and life will be as grand as life can be. If you take that same analogy and just stretch the timeline out a little bit, if Dad's a salesman and he's on the road, and maybe he's on the road for weeks at a time, you know, for kids, they've experienced so little of time that each moment seems big. If you're an adult and you've lived as long as Kent and I have, those moments seem pretty small. They go by rather quickly, but not for kids. So you can imagine a small child absent his father. Day follows day. Dad's pictures on the wall, maybe, or on the mantle. Mom talks about her husband and Junior's dad. But, you know, it fades a little bit, doesn't it? The imminency of Dad's return because it seems like one long moment, one long day after another. And yet... Junior lives with this sense of anticipation that my dad is going to come back. And I have a hard time grasping the concept of how long it will be, but that he will, I know. And so Junior lives with this sense of expectancy. And Christians are called, this is the deal, on the second coming, and if you love prophetic scripture and eschatology, and I hope you do, because I do, if you love all that, this is still the thing. All of this is meant to draw our hearts out to Christ that we are called to live with the sense of expectancy, that we're going to see Christ, and that it could be at any moment. And, you know, even for some of us, we may die before the rapture of the church and or the second coming. We may see Jesus today in a, a car wreck or some medical emergency we were unaware of. The thought is, am I living a life of expectancy Because I'm going to see Christ and because my world is made complete in his presence. That's what we want to take away. If you have your Bibles, and there are a lot of verses, we will not cover them on your study sheet there, all of them, but some of them. Starting at Titus 2.13, I'm not going to give context now that we'll try and give a little uh, more context in a bit. Paul's letter to Titus, Titus has been left on the Isle of Crete to set up the churches, the new fledgling churches. Among other things, Paul says this to Titus, his representative there. He says, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Paul says to Titus, corporately, we, you and me and the church, we are waiting for a blessed event. We could translate a joyful hope, a happy expectation, this future event that's going to fill us with joy and rapture. That's what we're waiting for. And that event is the appearing in glory of Jesus Christ, our great God and Savior. So Paul tells Titus we're waiting for, we're living with this expectancy of seeing Jesus. Now, The word here used for appearing, there's a couple key words used in the New Testament for Jesus' reappearance on the earth. Uh, Epiphania is one of them. It's used four times in the New Testament. One of those is is in 2 Thessalonians 2 verse 8. And we, we are told that Jesus will slay the Antichrist by the appearance of his coming. 
by the appearance of his coming, Jesus will slay the Antichrist. Or in 1 Timothy 6.14, when Paul is cajoling and commanding Timothy to remain faithful, he says, remain faithful until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. Don't give up the race of life early. Finish the race, and that is, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ. You've got a couple other references in 2 Timothy 4 you can look up later. So that's one of the key words. There's going to be this appearing. Jesus is going to appear on the earth. Another key term is parousia. It's typically translated coming. That's used 24 times in the New Testament. 16 of those refer to Jesus' second coming. And uh, look through your Bible if you want. There's pew Bibles in front of you. I think all my texts are from the ESV, which uh, is what we provide here. I just want to get a sample of the flavor of some of the texts that talk about the second coming. So if you read Luke 21, Matthew 24, 2 Thessalonians 1 and 2, and Revelation 19, you will have a good uh, sense of the main scriptures that talk about the second coming. Matthew 24, 27 says this, Jesus is speaking, For as the lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will be the coming the parousia of the Son of Man. The lightning from the east to the west. You know, if you're in an open field or something, you can see lightning. No mistake, it will be unmistakable. Lightning's flashing across as far as we can see across the sky. Uh, Later in Matthew 24, verse 30, they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. When Jesus returns, the earth is going to see it. There's going to be no mistaking this. Luke 21, 25 says it this way, the Son of Man is coming in a cloud with power and great glory. And of course, in a study on Luke last year, we talked about this image of the Son of Man on a cloud of glory is from Daniel. And Jesus is making a claim to the person who receives God's eternal kingdom when he says this. He's coming back and you're going to see him on a cloud of glory. In Acts 1, verses 10 and 11 Um, after Jesus rose from the dead and he hangs out with the disciples for 40 days, at the end of that, he takes them to the Mount of Olives right across from the city of Jerusalem. And up there on the top, he's talking to them. And as he's talking, he simply starts levitating. He simply starts moving up off the ground into the air. And it says he's received into a cloud. This is what it says in Acts. While they were gazing into heaven, he's going away. Behold, two men stood by them in white robes. Now, angels were at Jesus' resurrection. Here are two angels again. And they said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. This is one of the texts by which we know when Jesus comes to the earth, he returns to the Mount of Olives. He left from the Mount of Olives physically. He returns to the Mount of Olives Physically, Zechariah 14 is the other. Revelation 1 verse 7, John says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him, all those on the earth, they're going to see him. And last, and this is a little longer, so bear with me. This is one of the most exciting passages, by the way, in all the Bible. Revelation 19 on your study sheet there, verses 11 through 16. These verses we just read from Matthew and Luke and Acts, even Revelation 1-7, those are from earth's perspective. 
I'm alive in the day this happens. I'm on the earth. It's like lightning. It's Jesus in glory. He's coming from heaven on a cloud. And we see him. That's earth's perspective. Revelation 19 is heaven's perspective. You know, it's like being in the wings on the stage. And, and enter, you know, enter stage right, the next player. Well, the next player is Jesus. And the audience, this is what they're going to see. But we're looking at it now from behind the stage. So in Revelation 19, 11, John says, Then I saw... Heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. This is a war horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. You think about Palm Sunday. Jesus came on a little donkey. He's humble and meek. He's a lamb that doesn't cry out. He's the suffering servant of Isaiah 52 and 53. He's going to die for the sins of the world. This is not meek and mild Jesus on this horse when he comes back. Our church, by the way, takes its imagery and its name, uh, the lion and the lamb. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah returning to rule the earth. The lamb of God who took away the sins of the world has already been here. This is the lion of the tribe of Judah returning. So he, the one sitting on that white horse is called faithful and true righteousness. He judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. On his head are many diadems or crowns. This is because he rules over all kingdoms. He has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. He is a warrior and he's coming to wage war on the earth. The name by which he is called is the word of God. The armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. This would be exciting, would it not, kids? To be on a white horse in heaven, riding through space to the earth. That'd be cool. From his mouth comes, now at this point he's back on the earth, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. He will rule them with a rod of iron. This is, think of Psalm 2, God is establishing his Messiah on earth. The nations may rage against God, it makes no difference at the end of the day, because he has set, he has appointed his Messiah who's coming. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. That's Jesus' return from heaven's perspective. So he's coming, visible to all, no mistaking this event. We cannot miss this event. If we're here, we're seeing it. Let me digress briefly because I just want to bring up a couple other passages that are much more personal than this, right? So this is cosmic. This is worldwide, all this, right? This is from heaven to earth. But listen to two other verses. One is from John 14, 3. When Jesus was going to leave his disciples, this is his last night with them, and they're troubled because he tells them, I'm, I'm leaving you. But this is part of what he says. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. I'm leaving, but I'm going to prepare a place for you. And he says, John 14, 3, If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself that where I am, you may be also. Jesus says in John 14, 3, I'm coming again. And I'm going to bring you to myself. And we will always be together from that moment on. That's personal, isn't it? That's not about the warrior king striking folks down. That's about Jesus collecting his own, pulling us to himself. Along with that thought in 1 Thessalonians 4, verses 15 through 18, this is the passage clearest passage that speaks about what we call the rapture of the church. If someone tells you the term rapture is not in the Bible, that's okay. It's not, not in our English Bibles, but it's a Latin word that translated the Greek word that means to be caught up. 
So rapture is a perfectly good word, not in our English translation. But this is the text we go to to hear about what does it look like to be caught up with Christ, not Jesus coming in wrath and fury as the king, but what does it look like for his own to be brought to himself? Well, that's 1 Thessalonians 4. So Paul writes there, and very briefly, the context is, the Thessalonians, they had friends, Christian friends who had already died, and they were afraid their friends were going to miss out on Jesus coming back. So Paul's comforting them with the relationship of those who have already died and those who will be alive when this event happens. So Paul says, we're telling you by a word from the Lord, we who are alive and who are left until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, those who have died. We don't have an advantage on them because we're still alive when this event happens. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God. The dead in Christ will rise first before us who are alive at that time. However, I think it's almost simultaneously. I think the distinction in time is probably almost without meaning. Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. You see, this is personal. This isn't about the warrior coming to smite. This is about Jesus collecting his own to himself. So you've got this cosmic sense in these verses about Jesus returning to rule the earth, but you've also got these very personal passages that talk about Jesus coming to bring us to himself. Along with that, the lion and lamb statement of belief says Jesus is sitting in heaven at the right hand of the Father and intercedes for his own until he returns to rule the earth. So we know this, big picture. When we're thinking about the rapture and the second coming, however we knit those together in our theology, we understand God is saying at least two things, primary things. One is that Jesus is going to call us to himself, and the other is that he's coming to rule the world. We see both of those in these passages. A natural response to this is to ask, when does this happen? And that's where folks were last month in September. It's happening now. It's happening on one of these Jewish feasts. It's the time element, isn't it? When does this occur? Everyone wants to know when this is going to happen. You know, I'll adjust my retirement account. I'll change my vacation plans depending on what I make of when is Jesus going to return? When does this happen? I want to know when. Inquiring minds want to know. Jesus said this in Matthew 24, though. Can you and I know the day and the hour, the specific time in which Jesus is either going to rapture us or we're going to see him on the Mount of Olives? Jesus says this. Concerning that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. Do we know the day and the hour? We absolutely do not know. Friends, when someone tells you the, the time, the day, the date, Jesus is returning, you are free to write them off, and you may quote me. Write them off. They do not know the day Jesus is coming. Jesus is God and omniscient. He knows all things, and yet as the Son of Man on the earth, he withheld the knowledge, as it were, of the date of his return. He says, no one knows. In fact, back in Acts 1 again, when Jesus takes the disciples up to the Mount of Olives and he's talking and they're talking together and they ask him, when is this going to be? Are you restoring the kingdom to Israel at this time? Should we get our robes out and our crowns to sit on those thrones you told us about judging the 12 tribes of Israel? 
And you remember what Jesus says? This isn't on your study sheet, by the way. This is Acts 1, 6 through 8. He says, it's not for you to know the times and the seasons that God's established. It's not for you to know the, the uh, chronos and I think it's kairos, the Greek terms. The times or the specific times. You are not going to know the specific time this is going to happen. He tells them. And to their natural, and I'm sympathetic, curiosity, he just says, this is the deal. You're not going to know the time, but this is what I want you to do. I want you to witness for me until these things occur. That's the deal. We don't know when this is going to happen. So the language of a thief coming in the night is used repeatedly. These are on your study sheet. 1 Thessalonians 5.2. Paul says, you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. So get the picture. We're asleep in bed. We are absolutely unaware. We have no conscious awareness. And somebody breaks our door down or breaks the window. What do we do? We wake up startled from our sleep, surprised by the thief who broke in. That's the imagery here. It's going to be a surprise. We will not know the time. The world cannot map or strategize about the day Jesus is returning. It's not going to happen. It'll be like a thief. Uh, Jesus says himself in Revelation 16, 15, Behold, I am coming like a thief. You don't know when. There's a beauty to this, of course, isn't there? Same thing in 2 Peter 3, uh, verses 3 through 10. You can read that later. So can we know the time of the rapture and or the second coming? The answer is no, we cannot. Now, let's qualify that just a little bit. Is it possible to have some sense of greater expectancy based on things that are occurring on the earth? And to that we can say, well, yes, there is. So, for instance... Matthew 24 is a lengthy passage, and Jesus describes the events that are going on on the earth before he returns to the earth. So he talks about wars and rumors of war. Men's hearts fail them for fear. It's going to be, it's going to be a ta- terrible, 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 terrible time. And Revelation chapter 6 through 19 describe this time. Pestilence, war, famine... In in Revelation, the texts talk about thirds of mankind die at a time through one cause or another. It's going to be a terrible, terrible time. But it's described the time immediately preceding his return, Matthew 24. Luke 21 is the same thing. And Luke talks about signs in the sun, moon, and stars that foreshadow his coming. Signs in the heaven. You go back to Genesis 1 and God put stars in in the sky as signs and seasons. In Matthew 16, 3, and the context is a little different, but the application still matters to this teaching. When the Jewish leaders say to Jesus, show us a sign so that we can believe your claims. He says, a wicked and adulterous generation seeks for a sign. You're only going to get the sign of Jonah. But he says, you should be able to read the signs of the times. He says, you can look at the weather and predict weather patterns. If you can do that in the natural you should have some ability to also see the weather patterns from God's prophetic word. So it's certainly possible for us to say, based on what God has said in his word, that there are clouds gathering, if you will, on the horizon. We see some of these things Jesus and the Lord have talked about in the scriptures. Not getting very specific this morning, but just mentioning a couple of things. We know that Jesus' return 
will be to the Mount of Olives. We know that the Jews will be in Jerusalem and in Israel. We know that there will be a temple on the Temple Mount. We know that the armies of the world will be in Israel trying to take out Israel entirely. We know this from Ezekiel and Zechariah and Matthew and other texts. We're not looking at those this morning. We know all of those things because that's how God's described the scene of the world when Jesus returns. So to that, we can say, we can see some of those things occurring. You know, Israel wasn't in the land of promise for almost 2,000 years, about 135 AD to 1948. There was no nation of Jews in the land of promise. didn't exist. People who talked about the second coming of Jesus to Jews on the earth in the 1800s were mocked and laughed at. But the Jews are in Israel. The Jews control the Temple Mount. If you hear the news in the last week, the Temple Mount, guys, it's in the news and people are being stabbed to death, shot dead over the Temple Mount today. The Muslims do not want Jews on or around that Temple Mount for a reason. But we know Jesus is coming to Israel, to the nation of the Jews, that there's a temple there, and Israel's in the land, and they control the Temple Mount. We can at least say these are signs of Jesus coming. We're not saying days and hours, but we're certainly saying we can read some weather patterns here. This is a big shift, but we know Jesus is coming. We've just read a smattering of verses. We know that he's going to call his own to himself. We know he's going to return to the Mount of Olives and he's going to establish his kingdom reign on the earth as the lion from the tribe of Judah. We know this. Okay, so we've established that by these verses. So big step back. And if you want to, turn to the Old Testament book of the Song of Songs. Solomon wrote a song, this book, about his love affair with one of his wives. And and it describes their courtship and the consummation of their marriage. And this used to all be allegorized in the past. and, And this is about a real guy and a real gal and their real sexual intimacy and the fulfillment of their marriage. And how rich and good it was. And it celebrates marital fidelity and faithfulness and interaction and God's good plan and all that. It really does. But on the flip side, it also does speak to the kind of relationship and fulfillment believers are to expect through a personal, intimate relationship with God. And so listen to the language of the bride anticipating the arrival of the bridegroom. This is in Song of Songs chapter 2. Uh, Verses 8 through 11, I'm reading selectively here. She says, The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved speaks and says to me, Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. The winter is past. The rain is over and gone. It's our time. The waiting is over. The marriage is here. And we can celebrate now. There's a sense of expectancy. It's all she wants to do is see him come on their wedding day. That's all they're both thinking about. That's the kind of anticipation believers are called to have because of those prophetic scriptures that talk about Jesus calling us to himself. Jesus returned to the earth with his holy ones with him. It's expectancy. Paul says it this way in Philippians 3.20. He says, our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul says, heaven is our home. This earth is not our home. We are not Americans first, or Chinese first, or Brits, or French, or any other nationality first. We are Christians. And earth is not our primary home. Heaven is. 
And Paul is saying, we on the earth in this foreign territory, as it were, we are waiting for Jesus to come from our homeland and take us back with him. Paul says, that's the expectancy I have as I live on the earth and Christians are called to. We're waiting for Jesus to come back. We're waiting to join him like the bride and the bridegroom. Uh, you've got some other verses there for time's sake. I'll let you look at those later. Uh, Revelation 19.10 is a key verse related to all of this. <clears throat> when John the Apostle is interacting with an angel in the context of all this revelation, um, he bows down to worship him. And the angel says, don't do that. I'm not God. I'm a servant like you. But this, he says, worship God. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Guys, when we read the book of Revelation, if we come away thinking more of Antichrist than Christ, we've missed the message. If we get lost in the details or the timelines or the unfolding of the scroll, in the other players, we've missed the role Jesus is meant to play. They set the stage for the arrival of the hero. They aren't supposed to be the point of fascination. They set the stage. They, they, create, they help create the climax and the return of the hero of our story and our lives back to the scene. They're not the point. Jesus is the point. The testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. So one of the effects of reading the prophetic word about Jesus coming, our being collected back together to him, is that we live a life of expectancy, that it engenders our hearts and our affections towards Christ himself. Not, not merely towards knowing the future, this knowledge of the future. It's to catch our hearts up, our affections, to the person of Christ himself. That's one thing. The other thing is this. The, the blessed hope, if we study the scriptures about these events, and we are free to continue sinning the way we have all along, we have absolutely lost the message of this return and our being caught up together with Jesus. Because the rapture of the church, the second coming, is meant to call us to a life of purity. As we wind down, let me just give you very briefly the context for Titus 2.13. Uh, Titus has been left on the island of Crete with these new churches. And guys, they're a mess. They would look a lot like churches in the United States of America today. They are filled with immorality and debauchery. And these guys think this is normal. You read Titus 1. And Paul says the Cretan, one of the Cretans themselves says they're lazy, they're gluttonous, they're debauched. And Paul says, and you know what? That's true. That's why you've got to address them. You've got to call them on the carpet to this because God hasn't called us to live that way. So listen to the context for the verse from Titus 2.13 about the blessed hope. The grace of God has appeared bringing salvation for all people. The grace of God has appeared. That's the incarnation, death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. That's the gospel. God's grace has already appeared. Training us to renounce ungodliness, worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. That's what the blessed hope is meant to do. The message of the gospel is meant to purify our lives. We leave sin behind, and as we do, we anticipate the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness. Anticipating Jesus' return, we're supposed to leave sin and lawlessness and live in life on our own terms behind. To purify for himself a people for his own possession, our zeal isn't for past sins, it's now for good works. 
That's the context of the blessed hope. It's leaving a life of sin behind. It's clinging with zeal to a life of purpose and godliness. 1 Thessalonians 5.23, as we wind down, says this, May the God of peace himself make you completely holy, entirely holy, free. We're walking away from sin. May your spirit, soul, and body be kept entirely blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's the thought. Our hearts are drawn out in affection to Christ, thinking about these things. And our lives are transformed because we're not free to live the way we used to. If our hearts are engendered on the holy, sinless Savior, we become holy and sinless as well. So let me ask you as we wind down, do we think about the blessed event, this happy expectation of the future? Does, does this become the North Star in your life and mine? Because it's meant to be. That guides us, that helps us anticipate our union with Christ. God's good purposes all being fulfilled and Jesus collecting us to himself, returning to the earth to rule and reign with him, later on establishing a new heaven and new earth. I hope, are you ready for that? If Jesus called us today, do you, do you know, absolute 100%, if Jesus called today or if I died today, I'm going to heaven? We don't work, we, sinlessness doesn't get us there, does it? We're, we're good about sinning, all of us. But Jesus' substitutionary death, his blood to atone for our sin, that gets us there. And we simply say yes to Jesus' offer of eternal life. That gets us in the door, doesn't it? If we're believers, and I know most of us here are, if we're believers, is the blessed hope, is the knowledge that God will complete all his promises for us in Christ in the rapture and in the second coming, is that guiding our hearts to latch on to him more fully and in doing that to leave sin behind? That's the goal of the prophetic word. Lord, would you help us to sanctify Christ as Lord in our hearts? Would you help us to long for, to expect, to live in the anticipation and therefore the good of Jesus calling us to himself and being with him forever? In Jesus' name, amen.